Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Today's episode is a continuation of our conversation with Chris Denzel, uh, where we talk about maneuver warfare and systems thinking. Yeah, so that's a good segue to the next question I had for you, too. So we've talked uh, with several folks on this podcast so far about um, targeting and strike essentially overtaking strategy as an approach to strategy. Right? Right. So the what's the question? Precision, precision strike is the answer, right? Right. And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that yourself. Yeah, a few. Um, I think it's – I'm a little conflicted on the question. I think it's a, a fair diagnosis. Um, it, it's hard not to look at the last 20 years of war and, and – uh, infatuation is a strong word, but our uh, focus on precision weapons. And, and you can make the argument that was appropriate to the fight. We were in a counterinsurgency or counterinsurgency-like fight. We needed to not create – we needed to limit our destruction to achieve our strategic ends. I don't think we achieved that, but I think precision weapons were required. If we if we were to have been successful, we couldn't have done it without precision weapons. Um and, you know, 20 years of, of doing that is going to, um, it's going to change the water you, you swim in, right? Yeah. Like the fish doesn't know yeah. they're swimming in water. So I think a lot of our force is swimming in the counterinsurgency precision strike water, and we don't recognize that. Yeah. And we're only now starting to reframe that. So I think that the diagnosis is potentially fair. Um, I'm not as... Out here in the Pacific, I like strike as a strategy because I don't need to accomplish positive objectives. My objective is to yeah. deny the enemy their objectives. So I will yep. grant that strike as a strategy does not allow you to 
accomplish positive objectives doesn't allow you to retake terrain. You're not going to retake terrain by making sure it's under the the circle yeah. of an attackum's you know range ring. Um, you yeah. need boots on the ground, uh, tanks. You need you need armored vehicles to sit on a piece of grass somewhere. But if my job is to sink as many ships in the Taiwan Strait coming across to invade Taiwan, or my job is to prevent uh, the enemy destroyers from getting in range to strike at Japanese territory. All I need to, I'm exaggerating here. All I need to do is yeah, shoot, no, shoot yeah. things, right? Like if yeah. I can just shoot long and I can shoot precise, uh, I can prevent the enemy from accomplishing their objective. And out here, we have a strategy of denial. Our strategy is to simply deny the enemy the ability to do that. Um, so it, it that's an example where tactical and operational means uh, and, and methods support strategic ends. We are not trying to invade China and replace their, you know, yeah. seize terrain and replace their regime. If we did that, strike as a strategy wouldn't work. We we're just trying to deny China the ability to accomplish their ends. You know, you talked me off the ledge a little bit, to be honest with you, because, uh, you know, again, it goes back to uh, one of the things that, like you've said, I, I, I am fond of saying, and it's the situation and the conditions uh, matter. You know, in, Indo-PACOM is far different than than UCOM in terms of the, the situation that you have to deal with. And so that's good. I like that. The positive aims and negative aims. I'm going to go back and reframe uh how I think about this a little bit now based off that. I wanted to add one more thing to that. Yeah, go ahead. And that goes back to the the ranges we're fighting at. When you are talking about the ranges that we're operating at with n- naval and air systems, which again is mm-hmm. my focus because that's the nature of, of the, the geography out here in the Indo-Pacific. You, the, the weapons just reach far enough that for me to shoot you, I need to reach far too. And you cannot do that without precision strike weapons. Be, you know, if you're if you're trying to defend your firebase in Vietnam from the Viet Cong that are trying to come over the hill, you don't need precision, yeah. you don't need long range, you just need high volume yeah, of fires. Just, right? right? You just you need tube artillery and you need a lot of it. Um yeah. But a 31-kilometer range radius doesn't do much in the Indo-Pacific where every island is 60 to 100 miles apart. So I already have to go long, and I can't do that without being precise. So the nature of the air in the maritime domain and the fact that we're in the missile age means right now I don't have an option to be to, to lean on anything other than long-range precision strike. Um, yeah. I think we can go somewhere new where that's not the case. Uh, and I don't want to steal my own thunder because I'll, I'll, I'll sort of get to it with, with our last question here. Um, okay. or, or the, the two questions, for, you know, I think we yeah. can adopt new techniques, especially when you talk on manned, et cetera, where you don't need long range precision. But, but mm. for all of those reasons, I, I am not as critical of long range precision as a strategy as might be appropriate if I was focusing on a European theater or a Middle East theater. Um, but again, this goes back to having one way to fight a war doesn't make any sense because every conflict is different. Yeah. Every stage of conflict is different. Um, and would you, and, would you define a missile or strike strategy as an attritional strategy? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, yes and no. Uh, because it's you're you're always bouncing back and forth, so I'm threatening attrition for sure. 
Um, yeah. And and this this leans into protraction because sinking ships is yeah. attritional in the short term. Um, when you start talking about a World War II length uh, conflict, sinking a ship might might not be attritional because on on the time scales you're zooming out on, maybe you can yeah. you can replace them. But it depends on the time, right? If I get to the Southwest Islands where I can range a blockade around Taiwan in peacetime as a deterrent, then it is a positional strategy because mm. I'm denying their ability to establish a blockade because I'm holding their their systems at risk. Yeah. Yep. Same thing with, you know, subs in the Taiwan Strait or carriers in range or like wherever you want to shoot. Um, if you were in the, if you were in range first with long range precision stuff. And, and you have enough of it, right? If you only have one missile, it's not providing you any advantage. Right. But a combat yeah. credible force in range in peacetime or in a crisis phase uh, is a positional strategy because you are denying the enemy the ability to set the conditions they need. They need to blockade yeah. Taiwan, and I have anti-ship missiles that connect uh, the Japanese Southwest Islands with Taiwan. I have popped to the blockade. I have at least punched a hole in it. So I've unset their yeah. strategic conditions. That's positional. Yep. Once you start shooting, maybe it becomes attritional. Certainly if you are not in place when the shooting starts and you have to fight into those islands and place weapon systems mm-hmm. there, I think the strategy shifts to positional. So even the same method, the same weapon system, the same location, the same mission can be positional in some phases and attritional in others. And so it almost becomes yep. a question of like, when am I in the phasing? Uh, and that yeah. just goes back to the 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 your original article which is you know yep. you shift between those things yep. uh, as the conditions dictate that's a good uh, segue here so i'm going to lead the witness I, I fully own this on this question i'll even say it up front i think military theory uh, and military thinking in general is is in a coma uh it's been supplanted by a lot of ideas from think tanks and official military institutions um across the globe um and many of those don't really get to the truth of a matter. They get to the sponsored answer to the matter, right? Whoever's paying the bill for the report or whoever's, you know, hosting said, you know, event. And so I think military theory is in a coma. I'm just curious if you think uh, or see something similar, if I'm just being too pessimistic in this, uh, in this outlook here. Well, I'll give you the Sam's answer of saying yes and no, uh, and de- and defending both. Um, you forgot Clausewitz. You got to call it Todd Clausewitz into that one now. So, so <laughs> sidebar: Speaking we had military theory in in my Sam seminar. Uh, one of our uh, international students who, who sat right at my table was a, a, a German student. Um, so, oh. almost just to, to poke at him, I I declared myself a Germany fan. Um, <laughs> I. I wouldn't. I wouldn't really truly call myself either a Klaus Witzer Germany fan, but I, I spent the year acting yeah. as if I was just to um, just to have some fun. Um, I think the di- the diagnosis sounds feels right to me. Uh, it's hard for me to pass judgment. Um, I think you spend a little more time in the theory realm than I do, and, and that's that's neither good or good nor bad. Um, but y- your your job is to look at theory. So if if you say that seems right, I that feels correct to me. 
Um, that was the most political answer you could have given. Great job. Well, no, it gets it gets better because uh, I'll oh, also okay, pander by saying that uh, Dr. Jim Greer said that uh, you were potentially yeah. one of the only modern uh, military theorists. Uh, so you know that's that's pretty oh, high praise. Tip of the cap, uh, Jim. I'll have um, to uh, thank him next time I see him. But I'll answer the question by dodging it and answering a different question instead, which I guess makes this the, the most political part of my answer. Uh, Sure. For the sake of argument, let's stipulate that that's true. Um, I don't know that it is. Like I said, it feels right, but uh, I'm not going to. I mean, I can say yes or no. But but if the answer is yes, my question is why. Like, if so, why? Let me diagnose why. Um, I think when you go this direction, by the way. Great. Reading history, it feels like military theory was dominated by individual heroics um, in in the past 100, 200 years. I don't know that that's true in history. You know, there's probably survivor bias in history. Uh, so, so who knows if that's actually the case? Um, but and we only, or or if we only just read about the the individuals that that. Um, maintained relevancy, but it feels like it was individual heroics, right? The Marine Corps tells ourselves this, this mythology about ourselves, you know, true, but it's, it's, it's true fact, but it's also mythology, you know, right. Lieutenant Pete Ellis, you know, went to the the Pacific and, and looked at what was happening in China, you know, and, and, and the Western Pacific and came up with uh, the Island hopping doctrine. Um, Sure. Okay. That's a, that's an example of a guy who's smart, who went, saw some things, came up with some really influential ideas. If it, if military theory being in a coma is true today, I think that's because we've shifted the pendulum the other way. So we, we've almost have too much of a good thing where we are, we are trying to institutionalize uh, innovation, institutionalize, right? We have an army futures command. We have a Marine Corps warfighting laboratory. And it's hard to say those things aren't good, right? You you look at the you look at the individual heroics era, and you say, how do we sustain this? How do we make more of this? And it's you know, well, we should have a place where we bring all the smart people together. And that's not the wrong answer, but it can become too institutionalized, too bureau, bureau, bureaucratized. Um, and I think military theory, if it is in a coma, it's not because we want it to be. It's because we're trying so hard to do it well that we're institutionalizing it. And that is, it is having the opposite effect. Yeah. So, so you hit every one of my points, uh, <laughs> if I can jump in on this. Yes, except please. One. Yeah. So it is, so those are my, two of my biggest things is it's been outsourced to think tanks, right? But the problem with that is think tanks are, are led by the money that's given to them, right? So they mm-hmm. often um, say, okay, we'll take this on, but what is the answer that you're looking for? And that goes back to the other point. It's been institutionalized to the point that all nuance has been rubbed off of cool idea. But part of that is also that it's tied to procurement strategies, right? And so um, this industry out here has got this thing they want to sell us. Uh, we have to create a demand signal for said thing out here that they want to sell us. So how do we do that? Well, we, we come up with ideas about how to do things in the future. I'm intentionally being vague on purpose. Yeah. We intentionally come up with ideas on how to do things later down the road so that we create a demand signal that says, hey, we need to buy this thing. And so it ends up being not about the ideas on how to think and fight and operate differently, right? And organize, build new forces. It's about how can I get this thing? How can I make this this piece of paper say I need this thing out here? 
and then send that to the people that write the checks. The other thing on this for me, in my interpretation, the, the point that you missed, because that was just a, a, a drill down on the institutionalized part there. The thing that I think that uh, you missed, and you may have just missed this because I cut you off before you could get to it, is it's not rewarded anymore, right? Uh, I had a conversation the other day uh, doing a recording for the podcast, uh, but this part of the conversation wasn't in the podcast. And we were talking about this very thing. We we're having this very conversation. And he said, um, you know, you can't be Liddell Hart today, which is disheartening because that was always my goal. When I retired from uh, the Army, I wanted to be the next Liddell Hart, right? But the problem is you can't just write books and write for a paper and get paid to write military theory for the rest of your life, you know? He must have had a great pension or something, I don't know, um, from the First World War in the British Army, or he just made, you know, a sufficient living doing that. But that, I think, is the big part, too, that's uh, part of uh, a big part of why you don't see it on the public sector more prevalent than what you do. It's not rewarded. And the other thing is, if you, as part of that, when you look at it, so financially, it's not rewarded. But then when you look at some of the, the some of the people that have been theorists in the past few, you know, 20 years, let's say, um, a lot of them, you know, like Peter out at Lieutenant Colonel, which is a great thing. But if you're rewarding people, um, you would think that that wouldn't be the case. So, again, Robert Leonard, you know, he, he retired as a Lieutenant Colonel. If I was in charge back then, I'd have been like, hey, this guy needs stars, you know, and you look at John Noggle, right? John Noggle counterinsurgency theorist, right? He genuinely had a theory. He was a theorist, you know, by every measurable way you can define that. And, you know, again, I'm not, I don't, I don't know the background on why he retired as a Lieutenant Colonel, but he retired as a Lieutenant Colonel. Again, if I was in charge, it'd have been like, we need this guy up here running stuff, you know, let's promote this man. Same thing. You got David Kilcullen retired as a Lieutenant Colonel, another genuine theorist. I don't know. There's almost like this poison pill these days associated with being a theorist where, uh, again, I don't know why these individuals got out when they did or retired when they did, but clearly there's something going on to where that there wasn't the reward factor, um, at least in uniform on the uniform side that, uh, that, that kept them going forward. So let me go the other direction, right. And, and, and defend the state of things. And, and I, I'll start by saying, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I, I think if if anything, I probably agree with it more than what I'm about to say, but I'm yeah. a real big dialectic kind of guy. Like, yeah, let me, I explore topics by like, here's, here's one extreme. Let me just go to the complete opposite extreme and maybe yeah. that'll tell me something about the truth in between. So with that caveat, I'm going to now defend the current state of affairs, starting with a metaphor in true Sam's fashion. <laughs> Let's take the promotion system uh, or the, sorry, the command slate system. Um, So I'm not sure when it started. I think it was in the seventies or the eighties and the nineties. But, but go sufficiently far enough back um, to still, you know, probably the Vietnam era. And the way the command system worked in the Marine Corps was you would have, if you were a a, a division commander, you would have a a number of O sixes assigned to your organization, a number of colonels Mm -hmm. and you would, Of those colonels, personally select who's going to be a regimental commander and who is going to be your S3 or whatever. So there was the, the advantage of that system was if you had the right guy who was the division commander who recognized talent and, and appreciated that, they could pluck somebody uh, who and out and reward them. 
uh, and and if you go far enough back before that, you know, when when promotion authority was was not centralized, you could you could put a put a oak leaf on somebody's collar, uh, you know, a smart captain, you know, years before they would have been you know eligible for promotion. Yeah. So the, that system was advantageous if you have the right leadership in charge, and if you happen to have the right innovator who happens to be in that leader's formation. Um, but there are disadvantages to nepotism as well. Uh, you get a lot of bias in the organization. It's an old boys club. Uh, you get a division commander who likes things the way they are and you by accident get a, a, a young disruptive captain assigned to their formation and they get punished because the same authority that allows the, the leader to promote that person is the same authority that allows them to suppress that. So it's a, it's a roulette wheel of, you know, are you going to have, have the right people in your formation? Are you going to have the right leader in your formation? Are you going to have the right timing, the right ideas, the whatever? And it's it's a bit of a crapshoot. You go the other direction. You institutionalize the command slating process. You anonymize it. You take promotion photos out of the system. You do something like the Army's doing with BCAP. Um, you probably get a better average product, but the cost for getting a better average product is that you chop off the tails, right? You don't have yeah, that. You're getting an average product. Right. You you probably have fewer toxic commanders because having a toxic leader pick another toxic commander to promote uh, is is minimized. It's not eliminated by any means, but it's it's minimized. But the same thing allows you to minimize that is the same thing that cuts off the top talent. So it's hard to say one system is quote unquote better than the other. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And again, I think we are, and this this brings me to this, the, the last point I'll make, uh, for the current system. Sometimes it's really hard to see the water we're swimming in. And it's really easy to see all the shortcomings of the current system and feel like the grass is greener. But I'm sure there were plenty of people like us sitting around back in the good old days when the division commander just got to like pick by whim who the regimental commanders were going to be saying, this asshole shouldn't be in charge if only there was a board of people so that they could minimize the influence of centralized. Right. You know, so it's it, you switch the pendulum. It switches back yeah. and forth over time. Um, and so the last point I'll make on, on not recognizing the water we're swimming in. So in my current position, I I conduct bilateral planning with the Japanese. So I get to see an extremely different culture. They're, they're Western modern military, but but socially the culture is very different, and militarily the culture is very different. And they are 
fascinated with the Marine Corps' EABO concept, and they're fascinated with what the Army is doing with the multi-domain task force, bringing all of these different enablers to a single formation. And it's so easy for us inside to poo-poo the ideas, right? It's a joke. What is the MDTF? Nobody actually knows, right? But (laughs) when you look at their military, a first world country, a third largest economy in the world, one of the most technologically sophisticated nations on the planet Earth, but their military doctrine, because of the culture of their, their military is not valued culturally, that's not where the innovation is, that's not where the money is, that's not where the bureaucratic power is. It's a, it's a relatively immature doctrinal organization. They're also smaller, right? So you don't have the mass to, yeah. to scale things. Yeah. And yep. they are looking at what we are doing and they're just stealing it wholesale and it's it's me looking from the outside at the operational problem. It's what they need to do. So yeah, it's it's easy to be in in the system and not see the water you're swimming in. I have the privilege of working with the Japanese, where occasionally I sort of step back and I reflect, and I'm like, mm. oh, for as, as many challenges as the Marine Corps has, and you know, innovation and and theory and 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 the broader DoD as a whole. Um, here's another country that doesn't have the ability to mass produce innovation that is is looking at us and can take the good ideas and that's needed and they're not generating themselves. So that's what I'll say in defense of our current system as well is um, I am faced every day with a nation that doesn't have that and is, is reaping the benefit of it. So there are upsides, there are downsides. The grass is always greener. Uh, But yes, I, I also do personally wish there were more theorists. Man, that was a that was a that was a bomb answer. Let me uh <laughs> I'm here to change from A to Z on that one, man. <laughs> I'm here to to change the way you look at the world. Yeah, thanks. All right, last question here. Right. Uh so what is the uh the worst hot take you find out there? What's the most wrong uh or ill-informed or generally unhelpful idea that's dominating or maybe not dominating but floating around the defense and security uh studies community today uh well as a marine um it, it's easy to to look at the the, the chowder to society or the revolt of the generals mm. and, and say that that's the worst hot take but that's that's almost um it's hard to it's argue with man it. A clouds, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's hard to argue with an opinion. Um, it's easier to argue with a position, and I don't think they yeah. have that. So, <laughs> uh, I'll I'll focus my hot take on on something that's that's the. It's not a specific position that's put out there, but it's it's the way I think we're viewing um, the protracted fight, or or failing to do so. Uh, I. While I was at Sam's, um, one of my professors had me uh, read uh, An Unknown Future and a Doubtful Present, writing the Victory Plan of 1941. So this is basically before the U.S. gets into the war. There's no political guidance to get into the war because we're still officially neutral. And uh, this this major in the Pentagon is essentially just, uh, well, before the Pentagon, the, the War Department, it's basically yeah. just given the task of figuring out how are we going to defeat Hitler before we're in the war. He has no strategic guidance because he can't be given strategic guidance because officially we're neutral. And he doesn't have any resources and he doesn't have like a futures command or anything like that. He's basically doing it by himself. And the solution that he comes up with is, it's not about arrows on a map. It's not about uh, operational strategy or campaigns. It's about how do we build a military that 
defeat? How many armored divisions do we need? How many infantry mm -hmm. divisions do we need? Um, and it's just about numbers. So going back to attrition, right? Like attrition as a strategy, we just need an 8 million man army. And that is how we are going to defeat Hitler. And other people at lower operational levels can worry about flanking maneuvers and, you know, the battle of the bulge and how we're going to all that stuff. Yeah. At, at the strategic level, the solution was how do we get the numbers we need? How do we build the ships we need? How do we build the planes that we need? And part of that was also how do we build you know, on what was already a cadre army. How do we take an army that is designed to be not really a fighting force in peacetime, but is a cadre that can be rapidly ballooned in uh, quickly trained in wartime? So I think a lot of the fight and a lot of the, the, uh, the focus on what a Taiwan scenario conflict looks like, looks at is the first few weeks, the first few months, the first year or so. And we need to focus on that because we don't make it through that period. There isn't going to be a year two or year three. But I, I'm yeah. a firm believer that if we really get into a shooting war, it's going to be a multi-year long conflict. Um, it, there's going to be a lot of stalemate. Um, and there might be a lot of buildup without shooting at each other, hopefully. Like if, if yeah. there's a first kinetic few months and things settled to a stalemate, um, we're going to need to build a lot of stuff and put a lot of people and garrison Japan to defend it. And, you know, depending on how the fight on Taiwan is gone, you can imagine a failed invasion where we put us forces on Taiwan to fight that invasion back. We are going to then have to garrison the heck out of Taiwan to ensure yeah. that the cold war we have entered um, stays cold, right? This is, I always get it backwards. This is West, West Berlin, East Berlin. East Berlin. <laughs> Part of, uh, I'm bad with East Berlin, right? That was our that that was that was uh, the U.S. side in in, in the Cold no, War. No, 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 man. We West had Berlin. West Berlin. What? Yeah, it was All administered right. by the Five Allies. Well, All Five right. Allies. I, I apologize to my Soviet Union had East East Berlin. Okay, then I deeply apologize to my my German. Uh, totally not an army guy. Colleague, yeah, no, you can tell. Um, <laughs> my my German colleague from Sam's is shaking his head right now. Uh, I apologize. Oh, you're, the, you're a Germany guy, so it's, it's, okay. a, it's the Germany in me that got it wrong. Yeah. Um, th that's what Taiwan turns into, and that becomes yeah. a numbers problem. Uh, and I think there's a couple consequences to that that I haven't really seen anybody thinking or writing about, and that's just where my brain goes. Doesn't mean that's what we need to focus on, but that's where my brain goes. One. We need a lot more precision munitions. We need a lot more prisms and LRASMs and all of the stuff that we talk about because that's how we're going to get through the first few weeks and months of the war. That's where we're going to stop the invasion, right? Yeah. And we look at the defense industrial base, especially around the dialogue that surrounds Ukraine, and we think about, all right, how are it takes two years to build a tomahawk or however long it takes to build some of these munitions. How are we going to produce thousands of them a week? I don't know that that's the right question. Yes, we need to increase our production because we need more on day one of the war. But if the global economy tanks because of a Chinese-US war and the global supply chain of chips evaporates, mm. even if we could snap our fingers and increase the production line of these weapon systems to be 100 times their size, are we going to have the raw materials, the chips or the, the circuitry or whatever? I don't know how they're made, but that's, that's my question. Yeah. Are we going to have those available to use that production capacity? Or are we going to have to shift to dumber weapons 
um, not necessarily non-precision weapons, but a completely yeah. different weapon system. So I'm not convinced the solution is take the El Razan production line and just make it a hundred times bigger. We need to make it bigger. I don't know that we need to make it a hundred times bigger, and I don't know it's going to do anything for us in year in year two of the war. Um, yeah. And that leads to the question of like, all right, well then what are we shooting in year two of the war? Uh, I don't know. Um, The second thing is a little shorter term. Probably should have gone chronologically, but uh, in Desert Storm, one MEF, so the Marine Corps has three MEFs. One MEF is the largest. uh, Three MEF out here in Japan is is much smaller than the others. But first MEF deployed to Desert Storm to, uh, uh, to fight. In the process, if you read the official histories, in the process, they basically stripped all of the combat capacity out of 2MEF and and probably some of it from 3MEF as well. So you essentially had three MEFs in the mil, in, in the Marine Corps, and you, you had enough to make one complete manned, fully staffed MEF. And I'm willing to assume that that's roughly the same ratio as the rest of our armed force. Uh so the air wing, they flew all of their broken aircraft to the East Coast. They dropped them off with 2MEF. They stole all of 2MEF's functioning aircraft and all of their functioning pilots and all of the broken pilots from the West Coast got dropped off in the East Coast. They had to activate tons of reservists just to man the MOS-producing schools so that the active duty components oh, at the MOS-producing yeah. schools could go forward to fight. Yeah. So we look, at, we look at the Pacific, and from the Marine Corps' perspective, it's at least a 2MEF fight for our tiny little sliver of, of the Indo-Pacific. Mm. I'm not convinced we can, we can produce today two fully manned. I know we cannot produce two fully manned combat capable, hundred percent readiness maps. Um, and that's on day one before we start taking casualties. So I, that, that starts bringing me back to like, do we have some sort of cadre approach um, to how we're going to, rush everybody to the Indo-Pacific on week one of the war, but then also begin ramping up production with whom, right? If we take all of our active duty trained personnel and we just shove them into the fight, who do we keep behind to train the next guys? And you're seeing that play out with with Russia and Ukraine right now. And so the, the third thing that brings me to is, I, I think to win the protracted fight, we need to be investing in cheap mass, right? That's unmanned, it's drones. And, and to bring this back to the precision conversation from earlier, if, you're, if you've got a ton of cheap drones that you can just put on a boat and then it just like floats into the Taiwan straight and it releases all the jo- drones, at that point, you don't need precision because you're just sending the unmanned thing mm-hmm. to, to its engagement zone and you can be less precise. You don't need long range. Because those drones only need to go, you know, tens, twenties, thirties kilometers. Um, the boat needs to go a long way. Yeah. Um, and if if we are using lower technology to produce that mass, uh, that sort of doesn't solve, but it makes the problem you have for all these exquisite munitions that require exquisite supply chains. It reduces yeah. that challenge a little bit. So when I put all that together, like, oh, you know. It's not really that somebody is actively arguing against that as the future, but I think, you know, 
When I think about the Taiwan-China conflict, I think about two phases. The first couple of weeks of the war, because I'm out here in 3MEF, and that's, that's what I'm focused on yeah. rehearsing and exercising and planning. And then I'm, I like skip ahead a year or two, and I start thinking about year two and year three. And one, you say this all the time, you know, maneuver is great in theory. And even if it worked in practice, you know, that's, you're going to be able to do that for the first couple months of the war. And then all yeah. your exquisitely trained people and all of your exquisite stuff is going to be dead. And you're going to be just churning people out and throwing them through boot camp in four weeks. You can't yep. do maneuver at that point. So I think that principle applies to how should we should think about protracted conflict. Maybe yep. that means we should, we should focus on cheap uh, expendable mass on week one of the war. Uh, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I think that the concepts we have, the weapon systems we have, the platforms we have, um, if we can limp into year two and three of the war, they're not going to be around. We're not going to be able to replace them. We're not going to want to replace them. Uh, and we're going to need something completely different. That leads into, uh, or that, uh, you know, your, your point there is something that one of the bosses that I have, uh, that I work for recently was fond of saying, and that's don't lead with your face. And I think that that like is a bit like strategically, that's, it's not just a tactical thing, right? You, you, yeah. you don't always, you know, you, you have scouts out so that you don't bump into the enemy with your main body and you're like, Oh God, you know, and you get overwhelmed. Uh, but big picture strategically, I think that that, that idea, uh, it applies just as, uh, just as pertinently there as it does, um, in that context. The other thing on that too, that I think is important when you're talking about chips and whatnot, if you remember back to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I don't remember what month it was in, but everybody was clowning the Russians because Russian soldiers were going and stealing washing machines yep. and refrigerators and all this stuff. And everybody was giggling at this, like, oh, look at these guys, they're just looting all this stuff. But what they were really doing was they were going and getting components and hardware from those machines because they were running into this problem of shortages based off expenditure in the conflict. And so that's one of the things that I hope like we've taken away from this was not to just laugh and clown on the Russian soldiers for, for stealing washing machines, but the why behind the, the reason uh, they were stealing the washing machines is, <laughs> is extremely chips. important. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so uh, like the, my washing machine's really fancy. I don't even know how to do half the stuff I can do, you know, and it's got, I can connect to it from my phone and I have no, you know, there's chips in that thing. But um, the other thing too, I've, that book, I, so I've read that book. Um, I actually was given to, I was given that book by an Orsa and I started reading it on a flight down to Kuwait. Um, and then I read it over the weekend that I was down in Kuwait and then I finished reading it on the flight back up and I was like, Hey, this book was amazing. Thank you. You know, and that got me really thinking about. So when I talk about uh, my, I don't want to say infatuation, but my belief in the ideas behind, uh, like you have to think about war and conflict and from an attritional standpoint, it's because of that. You know, yeah. because like he was thinking about strategic exhaustion. Like if you run out of stuff, if your army has nothing and it's just dudes in a field you've lost, you know, and that's what this guy was thinking about. And so for me, uh, when I think about conflict, that's like the first, my starting position is if you're not thinking about exhaustion and how to prevent against it and how to force it on your opponent, yep. you're probably not in the right area to be, you know, you're not thinking in the right area. So 
anyway, that was uh, that's my last point on that. Was there anything else? I kind of I think I cut you off. I've been cutting you off this whole no, this whole no. time. So. Uh, I mean, if if you give me an opportunity to think about anything else, we'll be here for another hour. So uh, All right. maybe, well, maybe that just off. means we should I should come back in <laughs> season three or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, we'll do that for sure. The uh, you keep writing these barn burners here, and uh, we'll have you back every other week. Um, well, my flash right, bang so... for articles is two years, so I don't have one in the hopper <laughs> right now. So, All right. I'll, I'll see you in twenty twenty five. That's right. I will put uh, this article on the other ones that you've written because I know you have a couple in uh, – this one's in Proceedings and then was it, the other one was in Proceedings too, right? The other uh, maneuver the, one that you had not too long Gazette. ago? The Gazette. Oh, the Marine Corps Gazette. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll put those in the show notes so that folks can access those because I think they're terrific. Um, and then and the I think, um, uh, like I said, Center for Military History, I think it is, has the, the unknown future and a doubtful present PDF. So, yeah. so throw that in there as well. And go ahead and uh, – you should you should put your 2017 armor article in the show notes too because I I steal very liberally from it, um, okay. <laughs> and, right. and I just I, keep coming back to it. You, at least you footnote it though, so you you get that. You know, I do yeah. I do see that 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 mentioned in your in your stealing, which is which is terrific by the way. That That's article is uh has surprisingly uh, resonated and has a very long half-life. I still get, I still see it mentioned quite often in a lot of stuff. So that was a <laughs> side story on that. My Sam's instructor, I wrote that during Sam's and I had my Sam's instructor read it. And I was like, Hey, we just look at this. Uh, I'm not one of those people that bounces my stuff off a lot of people, yeah. but I respected my Sam's instructor um, quite a bit. And it was the uniformed instructor. I, respected my my civilian instructor also quite a bit um but anyway i had him read it and he's like uh why are you submitting this to armor <laughs> he's like this should go to some sort of like you know like rusi journal or something and i'm like because i want everybody to read it you know and i want it to be accessible because uh, i was really trying to help uh you know, breathe some life into Armor Magazine and to get folks thinking critically about things. And so that was why I published it through there. But he was like, that's a waste of an article. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks, sir. I appreciate your comments. <laughs> well, but, I found it and it's not behind a paywall. So that that's at least something yeah, for I mean, it. That's, yeah, so it's, that's why it's got uh, staying power, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's it for the day, Chris. I will definitely uh, give you... Uh, We'll work together again on this. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope the uh, the listeners have enjoyed it because I've had a great time talking to you. But it's getting dark, if you can't tell. Yeah. And uh, I've got I've got to get to the uh, we got some uh, basketball practice here in a little bit with the kids on a Friday night. Make sure night, to leave so. your books at home. <laughs> you know it. All right, that's it. Thank you, Chris. Anything else before we break here? No, I had a lot of fun. Looking looking forward to to the rest of the season as it comes out. All right. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.